Support for this episode comes from SAS. How is AI affecting how you learn, work, and socialize? And what do you need to know to make responsible use of it as a business leader, worker, and human in the world? Find out when you listen to Pondering AI, a podcast featuring candid conversations with experts from across the AI ecosystem. Pondering AI explores the impact and implications of AI for better and for worse with a diverse group of innovators, advocates, and data scientists. Check out Pondering AI wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. everyone from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is that hot new summer band, Jack Smith and the Indictments. Just kidding. This is On with Kara Swisher, and I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Naima Reza, and Jack Smith, of course, is the special counsel appointed by Merrick Garland to investigate these documents that Donald Trump had taken from the White House. And just yesterday, not Jack Smith, but Donald Trump announced that charges have been filed. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump has responded via Truth Social that he's an innocent man. These are politically motivated charges. And everyone from Kevin McCarthy to Jim Jordan to Lee Stefanik, all your favorites, basically, are decrying that this is a dark or sad day for America. Well, they have to, don't they? They have to do this. But Bill Barr, who was his attorney general, said this is not that. He Mm. said he shouldn't have taken the documents. And most people who take these documents end up in jail in the way that he's done it. Um, Lots of people by accident take them and all kinds of things, and they get various and sundry things. But most people who do this end up in jail. So in this case, I'm going with Bill Barr, although that's an unusual (laughs) thing for me to do. I think that's what you should call your next But he's a lawyer. He knows. I'm going with Bill Barr. Yeah, he knows. He knows what this is. He took these documents, and then he tried to hide them, and then he lied about hiding them. And so, so it's the same bullshit from him. We're going to see two things. Trump supporters are going to want to equalize Trump and Biden's documents. But the issue Mm -hmm. with Trump, of course, is that the volume of documents that he took and importantly, the refusal to comply and give them back when requested versus Biden volunteered his. Yeah. And same thing with Mike Pence, who was cleared of doing the same thing. And it's just a matter of intent and how you behave and if you compel other people to lie. And we'll just see when when the indictment is unsealed, which it will be pretty soon. We'll see what he did. And I'm sure he did all kinds of things trying to keep hold on to the documents and get people to help him lie about holding on to the documents. And the other thing they're going to want to make it seem is they're going to they're going to try to make this is Trump loves to say banana republic, right? Mm-hmm. That the government is part of the steep state or political opponents are out to get him. And this happens in Pakistan, for example. Mm-hmm. You're seeing fabricated charges against the former prime minister, Imran Khan. He's had an attack on his life, which he says is an assassination attempt from political opponents. But this is not that. This is just nonsense. He did something wrong and they're prosecuting for it. Yeah, this has been outsourced to a special counsel, Jack Smith, who has a long career across the DOJ and The Hague investigating people from both parties. And so, of course, Trump is flipping the script. Yeah, he was. But it just, it's nonsense. He likes to break the law and he thinks it's hysterical to do so. And then he gets hysterical when he does so. So, Yeah. And he seized on the opportunity to come out ahead of this announcement. Jack Smith hadn't even let the Secret Service or the marshals know. They were all scrambling to kind of figure out how to do it. Is all press good press for him? He seems to think so. I don't know. I think people are tired of this, ultimately. I think he has his base that always, no matter what he does, no matter how many times he takes a shit on the Constitution, they like it. And then I think everyone else is tired of it. Um, it, it's a, it's not even a smoke, there's fire kind of thing with this guy. It's, there's just fire. And that's, he likes to burn everything down and including laws and people can say whatever they want, but we'll just take it to court, just like they did his election lies and he'll lose. And that's what's going to happen here. He lost in, uh, in the sexual assault case. He just loses because courts of law behave differently than Donald Trump does. The question is, will he lose the election? Obviously, he did in 2020. Obviously, 2022 was a referendum. But I was really worried the other day. I listened to an episode of The Daily where they were kind of going over the suddenly crowded GOP primary. And Shane Goldmacher said something like, 
the most important thing you have to look for in evaluating these candidates, like most things in the Republican Party over the last eight years, is how they define themselves relating to Donald Trump. Yeah, of course, of course. He's really mutated that party. And we'll see. We'll see if they want to keep losing. People are sick of him, but he's so powerful. He's a loser. He's a three, one, two. And he lost the midterms, three-time loser. So I, I'm enjoying Chris Christie in the race because he's pointing this out rather well. I love Chris Christie. You love him. Yeah. I don't love him. I think he's, you know, he's he really was too tight with Donald Trump. He did Bridgegate. But I love what he's doing right now. And I think he's just spouting the facts. And, you know, he was a very good prosecutor. Um, and obviously, you can see how well-spoken he is. And a friend of mine worked for him and didn't much love his politics, but certainly had great respect for his legal qualities. I think he's funny. I think I just gave him $5. Oh, did you? Yeah. You're making political donations? I just $5. I just, it was like just to get him on the debate stage. I noticed you shared his announcement on Twitter and I thought yeah. that was odd. I'm like, oh, well, I, I, didn't. I don't know. I, I want him to be on the debate stage. That's all. It's $5. So you can question my <laughs> fairness. I want to see him on the debate stage. And if everyone gives a bunch of money, he'll be on the debate. It's it's how they decide who's going to get on. And so he needs what? 40,000 individual donors. Yep. Kara Swisher's one of them. Five bucks. Chris Christie, let's go. Anyways, these charges will make the 2024 elections even more of a spectacle, which is probably exactly what Donald Trump wants. And it demands that it be airtight in terms of election security and claims of fraud. And that's why we thought it was very important to have on this guest today, Jen Easterly, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, also known as CISA. Mm -hmm. And this agency exists under Homeland Security. It's primarily responsible for helping organizations prepare for, respond to, mitigate Mm -hmm. the impact of cyber attacks on everything from ordinary citizens and critical infrastructure, like pipelines and power grids, to securing our election infrastructure, which is Mm -hmm. through Chris Krebs, how this really became a known entity to the public. Yeah, I, I knew uh, her predecessor, Chris Krebs, and I, I talked to him not infrequently, um, who was fired by Donald Trump for simply saying the election was not stolen. Fired by tweet. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm very interested in this role. It's a new government agency. It's, it's designed to help state and local officials and across the country with these cyber attacks, not just election. That, that's been the focus, obviously, because of the Krebs firing. But infrastructure, we've talked, I've talked about this on Pivot, on lots of places, is the the challenges we face as we become this incredible surface area of attack uh, for, for the Chinese, for the Russians, for all kinds of malicious hackers and including domestic hackers. So Easterly has a very tough job because she's got to get all these, hers is a voluntary organization. She's got to get all these secretaries of state and mm-hmm. all these local election officials, including in states where there's high amounts of election denial on board with her tech. Mm-hmm. I would encourage listeners to listen for how she's going to thread that needle of addressing the conspiracies. Yeah but also playing nice effectively with all the partners that she needs to keep the door open for. Yeah, she has to work with these people. Yeah. These election deniers are still there, whether it's Kerry Lake or Donald Trump uh, across the country. And so one of the things that's important is to make sure we have another relatively calm election, which um, which someone pointed out to me, and I think um, it's correct, that hasn't happened since Bush-Gore. That's when it really started to go off the rails, this idea of whether elections were secure or not. But even if you don't believe this, the constant chatter about our elections makes you not believe in your institutions, which is, brings you back to Donald Trump. He wants to burn it all down and make you feel like it's all a con or you're being cheated and stuff like that. And so it's important to talk to officials like this. And these are public officials across the country who are doing their best to make sure elections and other critical infrastructure is intact. Yeah. And of course, part of the challenge is that the the reality of foreign threats kind of obfuscates or creates a cloud and cover under which conspiracists can yeah. claim that elections have been stolen. And so there's this very wacky incentive structure. The more the government shares and is transparent about foreign interference and threats against U.S. democratic infrastructure, the more kind of conspiracists can point yeah. to things. And we've seen this especially in the Twitter files. Yeah, that, that Twitter files was such a, a largely a load of shit. And Twitter's own lawyers in a recent case have, have contradicted every bit of the allegations made by Elon Musk. Yeah, this stuff is often conspiracies, straw man arguments, but it, you know, we are in a politically contentious moment, and that makes Easterly's work even more important. Yeah. By the way, do you remember who Trump appointed as a cybersecurity advisor once upon a time? I don't know, his grandmother? Even worse, Giuliani. Oh, right. Oh, that guy. Oh, good guy. His grandmother. I was correct. I correctly <laughs> identified it. Oh, honestly, that guy. Just like, whatever. Anyways, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back, not with Giuliani, but with Director Easterly of CISA.
This episode is brought to you by On Investing, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Each week, hosts Liz Ann Saunders, Schwab's Chief Investment Strategist, and Kathy Jones, Schwab's Chief Fixed Income Strategist, analyze economic developments and bring context to conversations around equities, fixed income, the economy, and more. Join Kathy, Liz Ann, and their guests as they share insights on what might be moving the markets and why, as well as what indicators they are watching for signs of change. They'll also answer investor questions on everything from how sectors are evolving to what the bond markets are telling us, to where to look for opportunities and considerations for your portfolio. You can download the latest episode of On Investing and subscribe so you never miss an episode at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On with Kara Swisher comes from Greenlight. Look, if you're anything like me, then I'm confident you wanted to make a really dumb purchase back in the day. Maybe you thought that boombox you got would last a lifetime or just wanted way too many high-waisted jeans. We've all been there. You live, you learn. But if you're a parent, you want to be able to pass those financial lessons you learned onto your kids in a way that sticks. That's where Greenlight Card comes in. It can help your kids actually learn how to make smart financial decisions at an early age. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications on spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. I think it's important for kids to understand how to get on a good path for financial success and what spending means and where the money's coming from. And one of the things that's important is to teach them how to manage money from an early age. And the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach them money skills in a fun, memorable way. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your your first month free at greenlight.com slash Kara. That's greenlight.com slash Kara to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash Kara. Jen, it's great to finally have you on the show. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, um, but I don't know if everyone fully understands what your job is. So before we start, explain what you do and what you run. Yeah, so thanks. It's awesome to be here. Uh, so it's CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Many Falls people, off the tongue. Yes, right. That's why we call it CISA. Yeah. Um, many people know it because of my predecessor, Chris Krebs. Right. Because um, he was fired. Because he was fired, as yeah, you by well Donald know, Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. in 2020. Uh, so the, it was. it's a newest agency the federal government stood up in November of 2018, mm-hmm. essentially to be America's cyber defense agency. So the whole idea is reduce risk to the cyber and physical infrastructure that Americans rely on. Mm -hmm. every hour of every day. And that's the decision that was made in the Trump administration to actually stand this thing up and to focus very heavily on our role in cybersecurity and also serving as the national coordinator for critical infrastructure securance Mm -hmm. and resilience. You know, at the end of the day, we're not an intel collector. Mm -hmm. We don't carry badges. We're not law enforcement. We're not a regulator. We're not a military. We are a voluntary agency, which is why our ability to create trusted partnerships, which as you appreciate, can Mm -hmm. be super hard, Mm -hmm. um, is so important to our success and kind of be at the middle of being able to coordinate everything that people need to keep themselves safe in cyber, which is, you know, is quite a bit. Yes. And we'll get to infrastructure in a second, because that's sort of a lot of the concern. Um, But it did become famous last election when Chris Krebs uh, was fired after he called the 2020 election the most secure in American history. And then he was fired via via tweet. He talked about this. Elections aren't all you do, but it's, of course— a big thing now. It's become so partisan. It's all, it's of course being used by Donald Trump as a cudgel in his election efforts. Talk about our election infrastructure because yeah. this is like the sort of third rail now for some reason. Yeah, I mean, you're right. And it's unfortunate. What I'd love to do is to make elections boring again. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, the secretary at that time before the changeover, Jay Johnson, designated election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. which meant that CISA would serve as what's called the Sector Risk Management Agency, meaning that we work with state and local election officials who are responsible. Who are responsible. Who are responsible. We obviously are not uh, for everything that they need to ensure secure elections. And the irony of this whole thing is 
when that designation came out, state and local election officials were super unhappy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to Chris, his credit and his team, they developed these fabulous partnerships with secretaries of state of all parties. This is not a partisan sport. Mm-hmm. And really robust, great relationships that, frankly, I inherited. And I think the most important thing that people should know is we are a nonpartisan agency. Even in a place where things get really politicized, mm-hmm. we have to ensure that we can work with Republican secretaries of state and Democratic secretaries of state so they can take advantage of all of the free services we have for cybersecurity, physical security, insider Warnings security, and, things like that. and foreign influence and disinformation. Which you will give them information on, and they can choose to use it or not, correct? Yeah. I mean, uh, the threat landscape arguably has become a lot more complicated mm-hmm. even since 2020, mm-hmm. right? We were very worried about cyber, a lot done to raise the bar on cybersecurity at the state and local level. Mm-hmm. Now we're worried, unfortunately, about physical security threats, which mm-hmm. I think is pretty freaking outrageous. Yes, I watched Succession. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> you were probably like, oh, good God. For people who don't know, on an episode, one of the final episodes of Succession, there was a, a, a fire and it ruined the ballots. Uh, and it was not quite clear whether it was a terrorist attack or a domestic terrorist attack yeah. or not. You think about what foreign adversaries can do to take advantage of the uncertainty around whether something bad that happens is Mm -hmm. intentional or malicious or just something that happens Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. So it's cyber threats, it's physical threats, it's insider threats and foreign influence. And the physical threats are these threats against election officials. Yeah, it's crazy. And that is something you help with? Well, we do a couple of things. So we are in the, what I call like left of boom. (laughs) Um, So we are helping to build resilience. So we do physical security assessments. We advise on best practices for facility security. But it's really, what they rely on is the state uh, state and local law enforcement to help with things like that. And then the FBI and justice has a task force. But at the end of the day, we are trying to help them understand the things that they need to do to keep themselves safe. So like training we did called the power of hello and de-escalation training so that they can be prepared to deal with threats at polling places. And these are physical threats against families or... Yeah, I mean, at their home, you've heard all the horrible stories. But, you know, to be clear, like, I thought... So 2022, I thought, went incredibly well. And Mm -hmm. that's all off the back of state and local election officials who kicked ass and were fantastic. But I was super worried that there was going to be an active shooter at a polling place. Mm -hmm. I was super worried about a ransomware attack. And, you know, off the back of this great work, we were able to, they were able to keep these secure and safe. Um, Last week, Chris Krebs said he expects Russia, China, Iran, maybe even domestic groups like militias to try to meddle in the elections. Um, What's the biggest foreign threat right now to our election? How are you trying to counter? I worry a lot about that Mm -hmm. as well. You know, we, we can't, we have to plan for the worst and frankly, hope for the best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the military, they teach you to plan against the most probable course of action and mm-hmm. the most dangerous ones. So you mm-hmm. think about cyber threats, physical threats, insider threats, and then mm-hmm. foreign influence disinformation. I think if you look at the nexus of some of the AI capabilities mm-hmm. that we're now seeing, mm-hmm. I think that there are um, many things that could happen with AI-generated scripts and chatbots that could make the uh, information environment, that's that much more difficult. Sure. So yeah. I worry a lot about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jeff Hinton talked about this, right? Yeah. The godfather of AI, that there's going to be flooding the internet even more so with fake text and po- photos and videos. So the average person can't tell what's real anymore. Who would you say is most, you're seeing problems most with? Well, right now, we're not, you know, we're obviously continuing to monitor the environment, Mm -hmm. but we're not seeing specific problems um, focused on the elections. But, you know, quite frankly, I think we will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We're doing everything we can to be proactive and prepare for it. You know, we expect uh, for our foreign adversaries to look Mm -hmm. for ways to undermine uh, our democracy. I mean, look at Chinese doctrine, okay? They have a specific thing in their doctrine called cognitive domain operations. Mm-hmm. What, you know, the military would call psychological warfare. So they're specifically looking to sure. be able to influence the American people. It's part of their doctrine. So mm-hmm. I expect that we may see things like that, and that will make things even more 
complicated. Right. And one of the things they have is they have a huge landscape in this country. They have a huge surface area, I guess. Let me use a military. You have a lot of surface area to attack, um, including social media companies, which have played a big role. And I know the Biden administration has focused on them a lot. Um, They're a private company to distribute information. They run political ads on their platforms. And in the election denier post-COVID Elon Twitter era, everything has become completely contentious and even more so. Um, how do you work with social media companies now? Because it seems like they are starting to take the brakes off again. Yeah. So we don't actually work with social media companies. At all? Um, no. No. I mean, do you think you should be? No. The FBI I don't works so. with them. Yeah. The mm-hmm. FBI works with them. You know, I think... As the director, I need to ensure that we are able to do our core mission to reduce Mm -hmm. risk to critical infrastructure. And at this point in time, I do not think um, the risk of us dealing with social media platforms Mm -hmm. is worth any benefit, Mm -hmm. quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as you know better than anyone, these platforms make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. And I want to be very pure on what it is that we are doing. And and we're doing it, I want to emphasize the reason that we focus on foreign influence Mm -hmm. disinformation is because we hear from state and local election officials that it is a major concern of theirs. Mm -hmm. And we feel obligated to be helpful. But I don't want to be seen in any way as telling Mm -hmm. social media companies what they should be doing, it's entirely up to them. Well, you know, in uh, Matt Taibbi did the Twitter files, full of factual errors, actually. But um, it, it is true that CISA partners with organizations that flag tweets to Twitter. Um, oftentimes, Twitter took them down. Sometimes they didn't. Um, what do you say about people who are uncomfortable with government doing that, partnering yeah. to try to change yeah. this stuff? Yeah, so, so thanks for asking, just to be very clear. So this was in 2018, 2020. There were... Uh, I think 200 pieces of information that came from state and local election officials Mm -hmm. that went to the Election Infrastructure uh, Information Sharing and Analysis Center. Mm -hmm. They sent them to CISA. We sent them to Twitter saying, you know, this is information that comes from state and local, you know, do with it what you will with it. You know, this is not, and we're not telling you to do anything with it. Um, So that was done in 2018. 2020, 200 pieces of information, and I made a decision not to do that. Mm-hmm. So we are not doing that. Let um, them pull it, get, state let them and local give them election themselves. officials can give them to Directly. the platform themselves. And yeah. I think that's the right place for us to be. Does that give conspiracists too much power? You I don't think mean, we weren't scope. playing a significant role. Well, first of all, it was a know, small 200, amount. and right. we were essentially in the middle of a process where they can send things directly. I mean, the other thing that I took a really hard look at, it's not like I'm going to, you know, back the fuck down because conspiracy theorists, right? Right. (laughs) I'm a combat veteran. But like I took a look at measures of effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Is some of these things actually having an impact? And at the end of the day, I did not see huge measures of effectiveness and saying, yeah, this is really making a difference in terms of that specific, you know, disinformation. And so that's one reason why I want to make sure we are not seen. communicating with these companies. Yeah. And we are seen by everybody as we are here to help. And, you know, by the way, like just as an aside, uh, if you look at the brief that was filed by mm-hmm. Twitter's lawyers, they made it very clear that nothing in the Twitter files said that the information was being used by Twitter to censor anything. Right. There or was no. Yeah. Said specifically the government. There was no. Yeah. You know, coercion, yeah. no censorship. No, I didn't. I wasn't much impressed with the Twitter files. But um, where are we for twenty twenty four? Yeah, good question. So we've we've started already. We met with secretaries of state, state election directors in January. We want to get out to local election officials and ensure that you know whatever resources we have, they can take advantage of. Mm-hmm. So now our field forces are going out there to do cybersecurity assessments, to do physical security assessments, mm-hmm. and to ensure that resources are available. So we're getting... How do you fend off the people who, the ones who are convinced that this is being taken? I mean, they, they attack the Capitol. You know, I mean, these people, they have beliefs. Like, at the end of the day, um, we are not going to convince certain people mm-hmm. uh, of the integrity of 
uh, processes at the ballot mm-hmm. box. I mean, we we want to be really certain that as much as as much as possible as people will listen to the federal government and listen to the advice and the advisories we're putting out, mm-hmm. that we are preventing, frankly, our adversaries that I'm most worried about. And our mission is not about protected speech. It's mm-hmm. We need to be very, very clear on that. But we need to also recognize that China, that Russia and Iran, we've seen these foreign adversaries use influence operations to undermine American well, yeah. confidence. We're aware right? of that. But, you know, more than 80 percent of Republicans and independents um, who call themselves very conservatives think this election was stolen. They do now. It's worked, Whether, however it got there. Eight Republican-led states have pulled out of the Electronic Registration Information Center. Uh, there's a conspiracy theory that it's a George Soros-backed liberal operation. It's obviously not true. It's a bipartisan effort to maintain voter rolls. Uh, what does that stay, say about the state of elections if you're trying to do this, if they actually believe the election wasn't stolen? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, in my experience over the last two years, working with state election directors with secretaries of state, generally, they don't take a partisan view toward it. They Mm -hmm. actually want the American people to have confidence in the integrity and security of their elections when they Mm -hmm. go to the ballot box. And by the way, just to emphasize, I have talked to Republican secretaries of state, Democratic secretaries of state. They're all concerned about Mm -hmm. disinformation. This is not a party issue. Even if they believe the election was stolen. They're as concerned about disinformation. Mm -hmm. They do everything they can to be, to look at this as not a partisan issue. I mean, Mm -hmm. keeping elections safe and secure and resilient are about the safeguarding the fabric of our democracy. And Mm -hmm. my experience with state and local election officials is they agree with that, notwithstanding the rest of the political zeitgeist. In Alabama, Indiana, South Dakota, Wyoming, Florida, secretaries of state are outright election deniers. Or if you used to say President Biden won at the local level, it might be even worse in Pennsylvania. 18 candidates who spread election misinformation are likely to win their races in November and a position to oversee how their counties run elections. How do you—that's not your job, but how how do you fight that? And how do you interface with these officials? I've interfaced with all those officials, actually. And where we come out on this is, is first of all, we have to make sure that at the state and local level, that those election officials feel like they can avail themselves of our capabilities. Right. I got it. So physical security assessments, cybersecurity assessments. And that's the most important thing. That's our core mission. Right. Okay. But if they don't believe you or imagine you're a George Soros back. We have not had any issues with people saying, I'm not going to avail myself of your resources because I think um, you're, you're, you know, part of whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And by the way, like I'm an independent. So I've been in the Bush administration. So just to like for your audience out there. So I have not come across that. And we work very hard to be seen as nonpartisan, mm-hmm. which is increasingly difficult because of the specter of mm-hmm. disinformation and mm-hmm. misinformation. You mentioned earlier you're independent. As you said, you went to West Point. You served uh, in the NSA under Condoleezza Rice. You were confirmed unanimously by the Senate. Um, so your commitment to the country is obviously clear. Um, Thank you. Uh, and yet I wouldn't be shocked if people started personalizing tax against you as part of the deep state in this day. Are you prepared for this? I mean, you're not Lena Khan, but I mean, the, there will always be, um, you know, haters going to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, hate a lot. I have enjoyed, you know, a good amount of support. Uh, certainly, I think, as you know very well, you have to have a thick skin mm-hmm. in any sort of, you know, public position. To me, what's most important is my family. And mm-hmm. so to make sure that my family is safe and secure is mm-hmm. number one, as it was, I think, for Chris as well. But what I would want people to know is, you know, at the end of the day, somebody who puts on a uniform and spends 21 years in the U.S. Army and combat zones all over the world, it's not about ego. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about money. It's about protecting and defending the Constitution of the United States of America from all mm-hmm. enemies, foreign and domestic. Mm-hmm. Were you surprised when they attacked Chris? 
for um, example. I mean, I, they seem to attack anybody. Yeah, That's I, the I think it got really, really difficult. Um, so do, do, does that make you want to keep a lower profile or a higher one? Last December, there was a scathing article uh, about you published in the cyber industry news site CyberScoop. Reporters spoke to 32 insiders, and they essentially said you've been too much focused on promoting your personal brand, and that's distracted you from articulating a clear vision within the agency. Do you worry about that? Yeah. I mean, that um, article, I think it quoted Jim Langevin, who came back on top. And so um, I'm sort of dismissive of that one piece. But I think for the core point, you know, it's not about me, mm-hmm. right? It's like Ted Lasso. It's not the Lasso way. It's never about me. It's about, you know, the <laughs> Richmond way. It's the CISA way. Now, CISA is a new agency that's been through a lot of stuff. Right. Got our director fired. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a pandemic. You know, we had an entire reorganization. What I want to do is be able to attract the best talent mm-hmm. and then hold on to that talent as long as we can. So I get out there and I talk about culture and I talk mm-hmm. about mission and I talk about operations and I talk about what it's like to work at CISA. Mm-hmm. And like, to be honest, uh, Kara, notwithstanding what that article said, over the last two years, we've hired 1,105 people. So that's a lot for a government agency. Right. So I think we're doing pretty well. And I think, I guess, the last thing I'd say is, look, nobody's um, uh, nobody's banging on Nate Fick for getting out around the world and right. meeting with foreign partners. Right. But, you know, right. when a woman who has a tattoo and a nose piercing mm-hmm. and likes to wear well, the clothes that she likes yeah, to you wear, like leather jackets. Yeah. goes out there and— You uh, probably can handle a gun. —is, is dealing with tech people. Yeah. You know, it attracts, I think, attention. Right. So. Um, there, there's an element of sexism involved, too, I think. Oh, you think? Yeah, yeah, I do. You think that? I think that. What do you think? <laughs> y- yes. Yes. Okay. We'll be back in a minute. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Travel can be stressful. I don't think that's a controversial take. Sure, we all love taking a vacation and that moment we finally get a chance to relax, but we're always so focused on the destination that the journey just feels like a means to an end. Well, what if it wasn't? What if the time you spent getting there was just as enjoyable as the vacation itself? That's what Virgin Atlantic believes. That's why they offer loads of special extra touches that make your trip one to remember for all the best reasons. Picture this, you've made it to the airport, checked in your bags, and finally have a moment to settle in before takeoff. If you're flying upper class, you could be putting your feet up in a Virgin Atlantic clubhouse at London Heathrow with food made fresh to order and champagne delivered straight to your table with a tap of a QR code. I mean, it's rude not to, right? Once you're in the air, the experience continues with deliciously different dining, seriously comfy seats, and the best crew in the sky by miles. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip and see the world differently. Support for this show comes from Ramp. Are you overwhelmed with managing your business expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? Is your finance software just not cutting it? Or maybe you're just looking to cut all that wasteful spending. Ramp could be a total game changer for you and your business. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spending. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Plus, Ramp is easy to use. You can get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. Not only that, but Ramp can save you money. They estimated that businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. And now you can get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash Kara, ramp.com slash Kara, R-A-M-P dot com slash Kara. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank, members FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Elections aren't the only critical infrastructure that you have to protect. This happens every couple of years. We have pipelines, government networks, millions of cell phones. Um, what keeps you up at night? I mean, I you know, I think we both read um, This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. Oh, yeah. Nicole's, Nicole's Pearl Roth's book. Um, after I read that, everything kept me up at night. <laughs> so what, what are you most nervous about? 
I mean, look, so whatever, 35 years, um, counterterrorism, intel, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. uh, as you might expect, I don't sleep very much as mm-hmm. it is. So I, I think what has been worrying me a lot lately, to be honest, is what we're seeing with these incredible developments on artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I see it through the lens, right, of counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And, um, you, you know, I believe in the power <laughs> of technology. Right. But I think it's a leader's job to be able to leverage the power mm-hmm. of imagination and to avoid the failure of imagination. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think there's um, it, not enough of a healthy debate about how these tools can be used uh, by very bad people who will operate them with impunity. Mm-hmm. So I worry a lot about that. And I look at it through the lens of, quite frankly, the short history of information technology mm-hmm. is the history of unsafe technology. Yes. Yeah. Well, you think about like 1983, TCP IP. So you have, uh, it was never meant for security, right? It was, mm-hmm. the, it was Dan Kaminsky. The internet was meant to move pictures of cats. Mm-hmm. Very good at moving pictures of cats. But you have internet with viruses. You have software full of vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. So you force the user to patch them. Mm-hmm. You have social media that is full of disinformation. And quite frankly, separately causing real mental health issues that I worry about as I'm a mom. And now we're hurtling in the world of AI. So So it's interesting. You didn't, I want to get to AI in a second, but you didn't mention, for example, the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack in 2021 um, or Winds attack, which was one of the biggest cybersecurity attacks. Where are we with those, the Colonial Pipeline and the SolarWinds? Explain each of them for people who didn't understand and what the fallout. SolarWinds is the name of a company um, that provides essentially... Um, just to think of it as like sort of it provides software mm-hmm. to a lot of different companies to help manage their networks. Right. And in December of 2020, it was revealed that there was a Russian infiltration uh, of solar wind that gave them a foothold in a variety of networks. They're in the glue. And yeah, inside the networks. So essentially, this became a pretty big deal because this was during the transition. And sort of in in some ways, it was it helpfully helped set the agenda for this administration to put cybersecurity at the as make it a top priority. Mm -hmm. So actually, in some ways, it was pretty it's never helpful to have a cyber incident, but that that helps set the agenda. So Russian intrusions, essentially for espionage, it was a getting into the supply chain, as you said, so to have those impacts to steal data. Um, then, as you mentioned, we had Colonial Pipeline. So that was a ransomware attack by a Russian-affiliated cyber threat actor that essentially got into the information technology. So mm-hmm. think about part of your business in the Colonial Pipeline. It did not get into the part of the pipeline mm-hmm. that actually controls the flow of, of gasoline, mm-hmm. but there was a uncertainty, yeah. right? And so they shut that down. And and then, of course, you know, the gas was limited to the eastern seaboard. Mm-hmm. It caused a bit of a panic. So these events, as well as others, there was Chinese exploitation of Microsoft Exchange Server. Mm-hmm. There was uh, the Kaseya hack. There was JBS Foods. So there was a series of events that occurred in 2021 that, again, really got the sense of urgency about what we needed to do to improve cybersecurity. And it's it's interesting because it's, it's it's a software supply chain attack, which I think people are going to go, oh, what? Like, it's not like a hack that you think of a virus steal my credit card kind of thing. But the increase has been massive over the last three years, according to a recent study. How do you even think about protecting ourselves when this software, which is the glue of network, I don't know how else to explain it, is glue, and they're in the glue, and they're hiding in the glue. And these are attacks from the private sector vulnerability, because we rely so much on the private sector, uh, but it has implications for the whole nation. Mm-hmm. H- how, do you, how, how do you deal with that across multiple industries then? Is it even possible because of the, the landscape we have? Well, I mean, I, I think you say the, the critical thing here. So a lot of what's common is the software. <laughs> you know, famously, software is eating the world. And yeah. like, frankly, we're all getting food poisoning from it. Mm-hmm. So the issue goes back to the fact that we have normalized this acceptance of software that comes full of holes, full of flaws, full of vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. right? And so We've accepted it. We've normalized it, which is why we think the only approach to sustainable cybersecurity, mm-hmm. to getting ahead of these complex, dynamic, increasingly sophisticated cyber threats, is to move up 
the chain mm -hmm. so that the software that we buy is much more secure, secure by design, secure by default. But you can't make them, right? You don't have an ability, a stick, to, to make them do it because they spend their own money to beef up cybersecurity. Why should they? Yeah, so a few things, right? First of all, I have to assume that businesses care about the safety and security. Huh. I want to assume that. Please don't. Care about the safety and Please security don't. of their customers. They do not. What has... <laughs> Maybe one guy. So so let's assume they care it's about their customers also. and the safety of their customers. At the end of the day, what has been missing mm -hmm. is a clear signal. Consumers actually don't know what to ask for. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, I'm going to sign this user agreement. Mm -hmm. I'll just press approve because I can't turn my phone on. And essentially what that is mm -hmm. saying is you accept all liability for everything that will go wrong for this device. So we've been forced in a place where the users have all the security placed upon us and right. we just assume that that's normal. So part of what we're trying to do is to move the Overton window so now you have not this normalization of software that's unsafe, but actually software that's created secure by design, secure by default. This is what so, you call, let me just say, you wrote in Foreign Affairs magazine, and the quote is, under this new model, cybersecurity would ultimately be the responsibility of every CEO and every board. How, how do we get here? Because uh, I, I haven't seen them concerned about safety of anything so yeah. far. Okay, first of all, it's not easy. Their own yachts. They're that, very concerned about said. their own security. Okay, so 1965, Ralph Nader wrote the book Unsafe at Any Speed. Yes. It was until 1983 that we got seatbelt legislation, right. right? I don't think we have that long to wait to move us from unsafe at any CPU speed to a place where technology products are, in fact, safe. So what are we trying to do? Well, we're working with technology companies to ensure that they understand what we think safe products uh, are, what is secure by design, meaning tested, developed, such that you reduce the number of vulnerabilities and flaws that can be exploited by malicious threat actors. So now we can actually move to safer code. There are sure. things that we can do. So that's one thing. And we're calling for radical transparency to, to so that we understand what's your roadmap to memory safe? Mm -hmm. What's your roadmap to enterprise multi-factor authentication? What's your roadmap to going passwordless so I don't have to teach my 90-year-old mom how to enable multi-factor, mm -hmm. two-factor authentication? So that's a piece of it. And by the way, we're having very good conversations with the tech companies on this. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying this is going to happen next year. Sure. But I think we can start to nudge if we show what the clear market signal is from the producers to the consumers, and we continue to use our platform to get there. And mm -hmm. it's got to be a global platform. And the product that we put out in uh, April, uh, we had six countries with us on it, the FBI, NSA. And again, we're working with industry on this, who I think gets it. Um, but it's hard because there's never been any regulation of technology. No, never, never been it. Um, and also... Going back to SolarWinds, uh, uh, CISA has said the federal government has managed to evict the Russian hackers out of American markets. Others say perhaps not. Um, I'm not sure we can be sure that we booted them out at all. You know, they were in these vulnerable systems and they could be hiding there for yeah. as long as they need to. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we live in a world where the products that we have are not secure by design or secure by default. And quite frankly, it is super hard to prevent bad things from happening. Mm -hmm. What we need to do is to assume that disruptions will occur and then build the processes and the networks so that we prepare for those disruptions. We have to be able to do that so that we can reduce risk to the American so, people. So are these Russians out of the networks? Did you just say that, that, that they I are mean, we did everything we could to ensure that these networks were remediated, but nation-state actors mm -hmm. can burrow in to spaces and can be very difficult to find. Mold. So can I say with 100% certainty mm -hmm. that there's not nation-state actors lurking in our infrastructure? No, which is why, again, we need state for software. We need CEOs and boards mm -hmm. that treat corporate cyber responsibility as a matter mm -hmm. of good governance. And that we all recognize, like, this ain't something the government's going to solve or that industry can solve. We have to work together mm -hmm. in what we call persistent operational You know, I've always felt there was an, the distrust between government and technology companies came from the Snowden revolutions. You know, at the time I covered them, and um, they were surprised, I have to say. And I was surprised they were surprised. Yeah. They were like, can you believe this? I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, I can. It was. An, I remember them feeling betrayed. Many of them. I was thought they were naive, actually, at the yeah. time, which was interesting. Um, 
And, so, and by the way, so, so 10 years on, which is interesting from, from Snowden, I, I think the landscape has changed markedly. Mm-hmm. I think that even just over the last couple of years, some of it because of these high-profile hacks like solar winds and sure. colonial pipeline, I have seen industry and government come together in a pretty productive way. You remember Log4j? That mm-hmm. was the software vulnerability in December yep. of 2021 pretty catastrophic vulnerability. That was a place where industry came together, government, fantastic researchers, to enable us to really urgently mitigate threats from this software vulnerability. And I think even the Russia campaign, our Shields Up campaign, where we work with industry to to help them mitigate uh, uh, threats well, from Russia. Well, they shouldn't be in denial anymore. Um, but one of the things is 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 actual citizens and Americans understanding the threat. It's very hard because they have accepted all these free maps and dating services and everything else, which I call them cheap dates. But but do you think that they understand the vulnerabilities? Because it really, there, there are so many points of failure, including individuals. Yeah. Um, you've said we can't just PSA our way out of this. It can't be this is your brain on drugs, this is your brain on cyber. Um, should there be a national program to educate citizens and who should what should they be listening to in order to understand it besides yeah. getting hacked someday is that your recommendation this is your brain's on, brain <laughs> on, on cyber? cyber no you yeah. moms don't tell people your social security number is my psa which <laughs> recently um, happened yeah we're looking at we're actually launching a, a psa campaign you know one of the even though you said you can't psa one, your one way of out the, of it look one of the recommendations which we're not going to take yeah. um was cybersecurity. fuck yeah what <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> to get people excited about cybersecurity. But that's not it. Yeah. No, so um, you can't PSA your your way out of the strategic issue, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean right. explaining good cyber. It doesn't mean good cyber hygiene goes away. We obviously have an individual and a business responsibility. What we're saying is all the responsibility can't be on you and on a small business. Never should have been. Exactly. I mean, technology companies should bear the biggest part of that burden. And that's what we're saying. So what we're trying to do is what are the very simple steps that people need to do to keep ourselves, our family safe? And it's not rocket science at the end of the day. Look, it's four things that people can do that doesn't take uh, a computer science degree. First and foremost, Enable multi-factor authentication. Yeah, that's that the just trips factor. off the tongue. Okay. Right. I know. I know. It's terrible. We create these words. Mm-hmm. That's why I like the, you, do you like music more than a feeling? So, uh, not much, but go ahead. All right, fine. It's <laughs> okay. like more than a feeling, more than a password. Okay. So it's a whole idea. It's just more than a password, right? Yeah. But the good news is actually a lot of companies are going passwordless. Mm-hmm. So you won't have to, you know, you can do a thumbprint or your face recognition. So you don't have to remember all of those different passwords, but you can get a password keeper, which makes things easier. You update your software, which we'll hopefully have to do less of if software um, producers produce better software. So, um, and, you know, the whole phishing email thing, you need to have people um, be aware of. Right. Those are the basics. Those are the basics. basics. Uh, I think most people fail at them almost constantly, unfortunately. Um, You made an analogy about cyber threats from Russia and China. And as you said, Russia is the hurricane and China is climate change. Um, Can you explain what you meant by that? I mean, we worry all the time. Russia's talented uh, in terms of their cyber capabilities, but uh, the real formidable adversary, the ones putting the most resources and capabilities into this is China. (laughs) And we put out a cybersecurity advisory, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, that talked about Chinese intrusions into critical infrastructure and what companies and uh, businesses need to do to look for those intrusions. Essentially, it was a technique called living off the land, which is using the processes that are native to your computer mm-hmm. to actually hijack them so that you can burrow in there. And it could be burrowing in for espionage, but some of the targets we're seeing are not about espionage, but about um, potentially disrupting and destroying our critical infrastructure. You know, there's a document that comes out every year that very few people read, but it's incredibly important. It's the Intel Community's Annual Threat Assessment. Everybody should go to the part on China cyber where it says that in the event of a conflict, which we know is potential given what's happening in Taiwan and the straits there, China is almost certainly going to launch aggressive cyber operations against our critical infrastructure, pipelines, rail, transportation, to delay military deployment and to induce societal 
panic. Mm -hmm. And if you saw the reaction to Colonial Pipeline or the reaction to the high-altitude balloon, you see that inducing societal panic ain't going to be that difficult, and we need to be prepared for it. So speaking of China, TikTok, obviously, you said you support a total ban. I have asked this of senators, several senators. Do you have proof that TikTok is a threat to national security? You kind of have to show your cards on that, is that from my perspective. Um, or do you support, uh, based on a theoretical threat, that any Chinese-based social media company that's wildly popular in this country is there for surveillance and propaganda? I think I believe that myself, but do you need to prove it? Um, no, I mean, I don't think you need to prove it. Certainly, we have a lot of evidence mm -hmm. of the threat from, and, and just to be very clear, I am not worried about TikTok as a cybersecurity threat. I'm worried about the massive amount of data mm -hmm. uh, that will be available to the Chinese government because of the ways their laws are structured, and that data can be used for all kinds of purposes to include targeted influence operations, mm -hmm. right? And Propaganda. so- um, that is one reason why uh, uh, TikTok is not on government devices, and I know there's discussions about potential bans. Um, I think it would be very difficult in practice to make those bans work. But by the way, when you talk about TikTok, you have to talk about the enshittification of TikTok because mm -hmm. that's such a great word in Cory Doctorow's mm -hmm. uh, article, which basically says platforms will die, but even though they won't be of value to customers anymore, people will be addicted and they'll use them, which is – so the things I worry about TikTok is the same thing in social media is just, you know, the, the effect it's having mm -hmm. on sure. our kids and people generally. And uh, I, I worry – frankly, um, that this becomes the shiny object. TikTok right. is a very tactical issue. We need to be focused much more broadly Absolutely. on Chinese technology that can be used to give them a foothold for disruption and destruction. Like That's where the focus needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, I agree. It's a shiny object. Um, I agree. But let's move on to something bigger. Uh, AI. You've said AI is the most powerful technology of the century, and you worry about the incentives to maximize profit to build better AI. Um, what are your biggest AI, as you said, related cybersecurity concerns? You mentioned the ability to flood the zone with information, confusion. Anything else that's uh, important from your perspective? Well, we've talked about technology, product safety. AI mm -hmm. is just another flavor of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think looking at the internet, looking at software, looking at social media, we should expect that AI is going to be safe as it is designed. So mm -hmm. just sort of that as a, a thesis, right? Let's just assume. That, yes, they're in a mad rush. Um, right, right. For and, profits. And, you know, there is a bunch of different things to be concerned about. I would start with the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do we know about these capabilities and how they can be used both for good but also for evil? Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to look at that lens. I think it's irresponsible to only say... AI can save the world and do all these great things and not to imagine that they can also be used mm -hmm. by terrorists, mm -hmm. uh, by rogue nations to do a whole range of bad things. Although many of them have talked about the end of civilization. The people that are making it are worried. And obviously you mentioned Jeff Hinton, but even Sam Altman put out a statement saying this is very problematic for humanity. But Mark Andreessen, a very famous uh, guy who was part of the Netscape browser, an important technology leader, just published uh, a long post where he says AI will save the world. He says that the, quote, public conversation about AI is presently shot through with hysterical fear and paranoia. What's your response? I will respond first. Yes, as usual, please. You as respond usual, first. Mark is thinking of Mark. So, uh, and Mark never does anything wrong. And he's moved on from Facebook. So, and, and let me just read this quote. The greatest risk of AI is that China wins global dominance and that we, the United States and the West, do not. I recently had Tristan Harris on. Um, he thinks the AI arms race will actually foster AI adoption by China. So yeah. tell, me, tell me what your thoughts are. Let, let me just hit three points here. So, so let's go back to your point about uh, some of the industry executives saying that they're worried Right. At the end mm -hmm. of the day, we've heard a bunch of perplexing things. First, we've heard cases being made to include Congress on the mm -hmm. need for mm -hmm. regulation. Um, we've also heard that government doesn't know how to do this. Industry has to regulate. Yeah, but at the end of the thing. day, 
you know, that makes no sense because businesses are built to maximize profits for shareholders. They're mm -hmm. not built for security. So I don't, I really don't get that. We've heard issues with the EU AI Act so that people want to pull out of Europe and then mm -hmm. there was a reversal on that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the EU AI Act, the, the, the schema in there is not too different from the AI risk management framework that mm -hmm. was put out by Commerce's NIST, National Institute for Science and Technology. And so I think the only difference is that the EU AI Act has teeth. Right. So I don't totally understand that. And then you alluded to this statement, 22 words, mm -hmm. right? Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI needs to be a global priority on the scale of societal risks like pandemics and right. nuclear war. 22 words that I think to be somewhat uncharitable is an exquisite exercise in risk transference. Mm. Here are my 22 words. And what are we going to do about it? I mean, if you actually think it can lead to the extinction of humanity, why are you making it? Maybe we could come together in self-regulation. Maybe we could pause. Maybe mm -hmm. we could slow down mm -hmm. and don't put all the burden on governments to put regulation in place, but say, I don't like that regulation. And, you know, we're going to keep on just hurtling forward as uh, Mark Andreessen would want us to do without really thinking about the implications of that. So just sort of one piece. The second, I think people feel like any regulation can crush innovation at the end of the day. Sure, that's right? their argument. And right. so, but we've seen like emission standards lead to electric cars. We've seen accessibility have the cut curbed effect where you can use accessibility for a bunch of different things. You've seen financial regulation lead to fraud detection and to secure payments, right? So right. regulation done the right way can spur innovation. So sure, yeah. you, can, you can accept that. And the last thing, China, right? There's a lot of fear-mongering going on on mm. China. And I just think we need to step back and have a more reasoned conversation about this. There was a really good piece in Foreign Affairs from Helen Toner from uh, Georgetown's Center for uh, Security and Emerging Technology and two of our colleagues basically talked about, you know, China is actually not hurtling into this space. You know, their LLMs are less advanced than ours. They're actually fast followers. Mm -hmm. So if we slow down a little bit, they'll need to slow down. Also, their macroeconomic conditions, investment, they sure, um, they what they have going on with semiconductors, they're actually behind. And frankly, that might become more behind. And what they're ahead on is regulation. And mm -hmm. they are putting very strict rules in place that govern how you test, how you develop, and how you generate content so it mm -hmm. aligns with socialist core values. Right. And frankly, it's not a model that lends itself to large language models, which scrape mm -hmm. the web for data. You know, the trope is uh, you can't count to 10 uh, in Chinese AI capabilities because it includes 8, 9 mm -hmm. <laughs> in the year of Tiananmen Square. Yeah. So I think this is a bit overblown that if yeah. we don't race no, ahead. No, no, I, I do. I think technologists are hysterical about the chi how China is going to beat us and then not hysterical enough about the yeah, threats. I just I think we need to have a much more reasoned debate about this. Mark, stop being hysterical about China. <laughs> Let me ask, uh, regulation, what would you like to see? What about AI? I mean, I think... You know, the, the EU uh, is way ahead, as they've been ahead in many things, to include mm -hmm. privacy uh, uh, regulation. I, I think if people have a lot of concerns with the EU AI Act, I think there should be some discussion about maybe how you can take what is good about that. Uh, this would be a really good opportunity for us to actually have a conversation with China. Right. Maybe we think about, you know, AI is going to be the, the most powerful, it's also going to be the most powerful weapon. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And governments need to figure out how we are going to control the capabilities that can be robots. weaponized. At least killer robots. We oh, can agree. Yeah. Maybe we can agree on that. Maybe we can. I'm not a fan of killer robots. I know, or, but maybe you know, there are things we can agree on. We've yeah, agreed on many others. Is, like we've become such a short-term society. Part of that is just the technology itself. But you know, I'm reading this great book by a classmate of mine from Oxford. It's called The Good Ancestor, mm -hmm. and essentially the argument is. We need to look at what is going to be inherited by seven generations from now. What are we creating? What's the earth we're creating? What's the capabilities that we're creating? And stop thinking about, you know, the next week, the next quarter, the next election. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to do, but quite frankly, we need to do it or else we're not going to leave the world we want to leave for our kids we're and our grandkids. We're leaving a lot of plastic, one-use plastic. That's what we're leaving them. Okay, last question. If you could wave a magic wand and fix one cyber threat, what's the most consequential thing you do? Increase cybersecurity for all power generation companies? Eliminate Russian hackers? Pause AI? Pick mm -hmm. one. 
I would, I know you hate the word, and I do too, so we should call it something different. Um, No, I think we should enable multi-factor authentication uh, in all of our systems. Uh, Anything that holds sensitive data, we should enable multi-factor authentication at enterprises because at the end of the the studies show that is the thing that drives down risk. Lock doors. Better than anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's locking the doors and double bolting them. So it's like a technical answer, which people are not going to love. But quite, quite frankly, it's the best thing we can do. All right, everybody. Multi-factor authentication <laughs> will save and, and, and I would take anyone who comes up with I a better thing to call I wonder if Mark Andreessen it. does multi-factor authentication. <laughs> I'm sure he does. He probably has one of his minions so, do it. Uh, like, please, multi-factor authentication me or yeah. something like that. Anyway, thank you, thank thank you. you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Multi-factor authentication is so sexy. I know. They should add it to a dating apps, you know, like I'm looking for a man with multi-factor authentication. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Tell you a lot about a person. I I have everything (laughs) multi-factor authenticated, but I cannot get my mom to use it or anyone who's even slightly. I mean, it's hard for people who are smart about it to use these things, but she's right. But honestly, can they not come up with something better? Shouldn't be one guy in your office who clicks on a stupid link, a phishing link, and then you're all fucked. So as we discussed before the interview, we were super curious how... Easterly was going to thread that needle of questioning around the election deniers, secretaries of state, and Mm -hmm. kind of ensuring that they have access to CISA services and they play nice with CISA. And she played a very bipartisan and buttoned up. Yeah, they're great. She had to. (laughs) She had to. I mean, I think on the field, it's a little more complex. We hear from the noisiest people. We have to listen endlessly to that, you know, that yammering Carrie Lake. To the eight states. Yeah, exactly. And I think in most states, most people, the people who are loudest get the most most attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and in and in practice, they tend to be, once you get near them, they tend to be a lot more cooperative. But she definitely didn't want to like slap around the election deniers very much. Irrespective of what they do, her job is to kind of op- ensure there's this open door for states to benefit from the infrastructure, yeah. from the security that they're providing and, and to not isolate them. There's probably something to be learned from that. Sure is. That's why I'd never be an election official. <laughs> Um, the most interesting thing for me, though, was when she mentioned that they don't work with social media companies. It's not even worth the look of suppression. Yeah, and that makes sense, actually, for that particular agency. There's other agencies, you know, in Congress dealing with the social media companies. But the, I think it's best if she looks as nonpartisan as possible. And she really is the personification that having worked for Condoleezza Rice, who I think very few people can argue isn't conservative and Republican, yeah. et cetera, to the Biden administration. So she's really got to look like I'm here to help you uh, do a better yeah. job and uh, w- let's let the chips fall where they may in terms of the election, but I'm here to make sure they're secure. And I think that's probably yeah. the best thing. And not even look like, but be like. I found that kind of concerning. I asked you to push back on that. It doesn't give the conspiracists too much power in some no. in some way. Yeah. I like that she pushed back with the kind of shade Twitter's attorneys. And I really appreciated her. I'm not going to back the fuck down because of conspiracy theorists. I'm a combat veteran. Yeah, like exactly. I love when she pulls out the, uh, I, I can use an AK-47 to just be <laughs> careful. You know, I know how to... I know how to take a man down with one touch, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, there's not much you can do in this country. But in countries like Brazil, you see they are able to come out and the government's able to come out and block extremist content on both ends. Yeah, it would be nice if 90 days before the election, all the social media companies would shut the fuck up. That's they should do that like they do in other countries. Or in France, you only have like three weeks of campaigning. I mean, not just the social media companies, the airwaves, everything. Like, can we just reduce the pork barrel of our politics a little bit? That would be nice. No, we cannot. No. You said something very interesting I wanted to pick up on. You said the distrust between government and tech companies, you've always thought, comes from the Snowden revelations. Say more. Look, tech companies and government have worked together for decades and decades and decades and decades. Like, it's not, this is not a new, fresh relationship. And so there's always been a cooperative thing. And then, of course, subpoenas to get certain information. And as more information has grown online, that's where the subpoenas come from. We all understand that. But I think with Snowden, I was there and covered it for Recode. And they were very surprised the extent of what the government was doing um, Uh in terms of spying. And I I was surprised they were, not everybody, of course, but I think a lot of them were were very much, we're helping you and you're doing this, you're spying on us too. And uh, and the manner in which they spied. And, um, you know, I thought, I just, I remember it being them being very exercised and Mm. distrustful of government during that period. And, you know, they they cooperate today uh, behind the scenes in ways we probably don't 
we'd be surprised about. And they're also, um, I mean, the government's a huge customer for us. Yes, so their skepticism is, is, is interesting. I've always thought it was um, something uniquely American, not endemic to the tech sector. The tech sector was a little bit of an outlier in the mm-hmm. collaboration, but something around the creation of this country, like people, most of us have come here as immigrants, maybe persecuted by a government. Mm-hmm. And there is a distrust of government and a kind of you make your own mentality that leads to that distrust. Well, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Right now, there's more of a prevalence in the Elon Musk crowd sort of hates government even as they benefit from it extensively, whether yeah. it's Palantir or uh, space stuff or whatever. But they always manage to put up deep state kind of ideas um, around the government. Well, it serves people, it serves capitalists to undermine and neuter government. I mean, that's one of the things. Well, they've done a great job. Well, yeah, that's the thing. 100%. But you guys, you and Jen had kind of flipped skepticism. She had more bullishness about private companies wanting to protect the privacy and security. You said they only care about securing their yachts. Yes, that's correct. And you were more bullish about the AI founders, and you cut them some slack for recognizing the dangers up to extinction, which she kind of replied, what will they do about it? I tend to agree with her on that, by the way. Yes, that's that's true. But the original internet people uh, was all diamonds and roses and daffodils. And it never was, this could kill humanity. And I get that it could be just a flex or virtue signaling or whatever, but they no one ever said it publicly. And so I get that they could try to... Um, to neuter some of this, these efforts. But I think everyone's aware that this time we have to get it right. As two of your favorite words. What? Low bar. Low bar, that's true. <laughs> All right, well, let's do a test before we leave. Okay. All right. What are the four things she had wanted people to do? Oh, God. Uh, four, two, four, two-factor authentication, multi-factor, whatever. It's two-factor, really. Um, oh, change your password or get a password manager. Um, I guess don't click on stupid things, you idiots. Yeah, beware of malicious fishing. And I don't know the fourth one. Update your software. Update your software. Which you just did. Yeah, I did. I did indeed. So that's good tech advice from Jen Easterly. And we, speaking of advice, are doing a special advice episode of On. So if you want our tips on anything, career, tech, relationships, fashion. Just Aztec stuff. That would be good for me. <laughs> anyway, the number is one eight 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 cara please plz um, And we will talk about anything you want. Um, we like to do these shows and we love to hear from our listeners at all times and always with great questions. So again, call one eight 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 cara please plz All right. Want to read us out? Yes. Today's show was produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Christian Castro-Rossell, Megan Burney, and Megan Cunane. Special thanks to Andrea Lopez-Cruzado. Our engineers are Fernando Aruda and Rick Kwan. Our theme music is by Trackademics. If you're already following the show, you get a star in the CISA PSA. If not, you have to be Mark Andreessen's minion. Go wherever you listen to podcasts, search for On with Kara Swisher and hit follow. Thanks for listening to On with Kara Swisher from New York Magazine, the Vox Media Podcast Network, and us. We'll be back on Thursday with more.